Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. Richard, welcome to the Relating to Self podcast, finally. Thank you very much, Joachim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here finally in person. Wonderful. Yeah, you were one of those people on my very first list of people that I wanted to have on the podcast. And for some reason, it took many years for us to arrive here. But now we are here in the same space, actually. And that Mm. is so wonderful. I'm flattered to hear that. And I'd also like to think that I am like the best guest I can be today in spring of 2023. I like that. Yes. Uh, You're a very different person now than you were when I originally asked you. I think we all are. Exactly. Yeah. Great. So um, just for context, I'm going to introduce you as you're a sandboxer. That's how I know you. I remember the first time we met was in Tokyo, which was kind of strange because we both don't live there. And it was a very kind of rushed affair. We we had dinner, but you didn't have much time. Uh-huh. Yes. And then after that, I guess the most important part of our interacting happened on what we call the Friends Day calls, which is something we started during the COVID lockdown. Yeah. And since then, we've had a call pretty much every week with uh, the four of us, yeah. Joshua, Georgie, you and me. And Joshua and Georgie have both been on the podcast already. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most consistent social interactions that I've had perhaps ever. Yeah. yeah. And really interesting for me as well, because it's such a, a different format to get to know people than, than to just like meet up for a drink or something. Having these consistent Zoom calls with four people every week. Yeah, and Great. they see us moving between continents, between relationships, between well, various emotional states. It's, it's fascinating. Yes. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to talk about how you relate to yourself, or at least, you know, what that means to you, how you see that. Yeah, we'll be talking under the headline of relating to self. Exactly. Yeah. And anything can come up. Mm. But so my first question is, as always, when you hear the term relating to self, what does that mean to you or what comes up? Mm. Well, what comes up today is, um, I'd say something that has a lot to do with, um, with language too. Uh, that's my first association. I'm, I'm a strong believer in the power of language and the power of language to um, shape how we perceive the world and how we create our own worlds. And that, of course, is true, I believe, is true for, for me as much as it is for anyone else, that we, um, we understand, understand the world through the words and the concepts that we have access to and that we have learned and that we have some form of grip on. Um, and similarly, when we express things about the world or about ourselves or about others or about... Um, anything really, then 
we're also limited by those concepts that we have access to. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious about this because, well, in my in the recording of the podcast I had yesterday with Anne Lorraine, we we went a lot into the opposite of that, mm. kind of like perceiving the world through the senses and the the pre-thought kind of aspect of of being in the world almost. Mm. And so I'm really curious to see how that will relate to this perspective of words. But first I'd like to ask, what words would you use to describe your relationship with yourself? Oh, mm. I'd say reflective. That relationship is definitely one of like, introspection, I think is unavoidable. Um, quite uh, irregular and sometimes also surprising in, in how I relate to myself. I have found more interesting, juicy, relevant things about myself when not trying to find them rather mm -hmm. than when trying to find them. And coming back to a, a tangent to this linguistic or language-oriented idea, I also find that I grow my relationship to myself mostly in my interactions with others. So when I look at my journal, for example, uh, large parts of it consists of outtakes from conversations or from uh, written chats or from phone calls where I and quotes from other people. So I actually do a lot of my journaling just through, um, through being with others and through having those conversations and exchanges. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's when it's tested, right? I like to think that my relationship with myself, I have like the aspect of training it almost, which includes all my practices. Yeah. And then I go out in the world and I meet people. Mm. And that's the real test of, of any relating to self. Yeah. yeah it's like you, you have that relationship to yourself by yourself, right? You, you can definitely have it in solitude, but I think it's only really like it comes alive with others, mm. right? Like like it, 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 it somehow, yeah, it is alive with yourself, but it's also extra alive uh, when you meet someone else. And I, I like to even think of like my relationship to self as this ongoing conversation with all the people I've met throughout my life to each age I'm at now in my late thirties. And it, there's this beautiful sort of ongoing conversation with multiple conversation partners that come and go over time but I'm somehow keeping a lot of those threads going. And that's how I also find myself and like remain myself in these conversations. And I'm no stranger to picking up a topic that I talked to Alexandra about with uh, Joanna a year later and say like, hey, here's something I received in a conversation with this person or that came up that time. Um, that might be something that I'd like to now pursue in this new conversation with the next person. So I'm somehow the steward of these topics that relate to me, but I invite other people along the way to, um, to also give their perspective on it and to help, help me get further into those things. I'm curious, well, because you opened with this idea of words being the lens through which we perceive the world mm. and make sense of it. And so when you look at your relationship with yourself over time, I imagine the words you've used for yourself or maybe the words you've used to speak to yourself internally mm. um, have shifted over time. And I'm curious if that was a conscious effort. If you're like, hey, I noticed myself using 
let's mm. say bad words, words yeah. that are labeled as, you know, oh, you're not patient enough or you're mm. not good, whatever it is. Yeah. Have you consciously tried to change the words mm. in your mind when it comes to your self-perception? Um, mm. Yeah, I think there are two things I'd like to to bring to that question. One is just a simple sort of eternal couple of words, hate and love. And where, you know, in my relationship to self, I'd like to be like a loving person, of course, and less of a hating person. So I really try to reserve the word hate for when I really feel hateful towards something or someone or some situation or even myself. And um, for me, that is an important thing because I don't, the more, the more you use it, the more you speak it into existence and the more casually, like I'm quite allergic to casual use of the word hate. That, that's something that I always react to because I know, oh, in my theory and the way that I un understand how these things work and the way that I would like to think they work. Um, when, when someone throws around a lot of hate, like four or five hates per day, they hate the traffic, they hate like whatever else, the pollution, the even really big things that we should be hating, like perhaps climate issues or whatnot. But the more hate you verbalize, the more you fill your life with hate, really. And you fill your, your brain and even your body with, with hate, I think, as you say it. Because as you say it, you also somehow feel it. And I try to do the opposite to really minimize the, the hate that I express. That's not to say, well, do I then just avoid the feeling? Perhaps, yeah. But I like to think that we can also control that to some degree. And I can find by, by fine-tuning my relationship to myself, I can figure out, well... Hate is the easy go-to and say, I hate traffic, but if I go a little deeper in that, I might find how I actually, in my relationship with myself, feel about this traffic. I'm perhaps frustrated by traffic. That's a whole different thing because then I can start looking at, okay, what, where is this coming from and dig, dig more into it. And the flip side with love, of course, the more I utter the word love, like I really love this croissant instead of saying, yeah, I really like it. It's actually quite good. Like love is like a whole nother level of which I think is good, like, you know, loving and bake good. Yeah, why not? You know, the more, the more love, the better. And love is not finite. Like, I want to practice that love and like flex that love muscle in, in using it as much as I can. And for a long time, I was also fearful of that, um, of, of naming things as love, because I felt that it needed to be reserved for some particularly strong feeling or sensation or very particular occasion. But I think we can we can throw it throw it around a lot more because the more we use it, the more it grows. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. I I see these things probably as some kind of feedback mechanism. I think mm. it goes both ways. I think someone using the word hate a lot probably is already internally dealing with a lot of self hate, and that's mm. why they project it outwards into the world. And so I think it goes both ways. Yeah. Using the words more mm -hmm. helps you kind of navigate the field of words that you associate with yourself, yeah. but also then dealing with your emotions in some way, mm. which is usually just for me, allowing them to be <laughs> kind of takes away the the charge from which the words would then maybe arise. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious if also your, your underlying emotional current of your life, let's say, right? Has that generally improved over time? And is that also the reason why you can use the word love more? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Like I've uh, made efforts and stumbled into opportunities to, I'd say, extend my emotional range 
and like shift it in the direction that I want. And improv theater has been a huge eye opener for me, or mm. I should say perhaps a heart opener in that regard, or at least like an emotional opener where I've been pushed to express much stronger emotions. And that goes back to it again, like by, um, by acting out these emotions in a totally made up situation, it still like renders it possible for me to then also feel them and behave them and live them in other real life, so to say, situations. We can, of course, argue whether life is acting or acting is life or, you know, what's, what's on stage, off stage. Uh, are we always performing? Uh, um, but yeah, I found that to be really helpful and something that's in the past years have really helped me to know that there is a whole, like a vast landscape of emotional expression outside of what I'm used to and something that I'm still really working on um, expanding and you know, finding where where are my discomfort com- discomforts on this range, like what what feels wrong and like what, yeah, how do I respond to various situations, et cetera, in an, on an emotional level? And how does that emotion come to expression? Mm. Yeah, the one thing I've I've been thinking about is this idea of being more precise with the words mm-hmm. you use also yeah. increases the capacity we have to actually perceive things or experience things or feel emotions. Um, I think my dynamic range, so to speak, of emotions has widened a lot. Just by learning to speak about them more and using more precise words. It's kind of almost what you said about the croissant. Mm. Like, yes, you can say, I love this croissant, but love is kind of like a generic word that can be used for so many things. It loses meaning. Yeah. If you can name, like, ooh, I really appreciate the specific way the crust of this croissant feels between my teeth when I bite it, I think that leads to a richer experience of the world, but then also a greater capacity for, for feeling and expression. And I'm curious if that's something you'd agree with. Or, yeah. Yeah. I'd like What's to challenge you a little bit. I, yeah. I agree with your, your general, what you're the saying that, yeah, the, the more we can like fine tune our language, the more we can, um, we can feel and the more variations we have in the perception. I would like, in this case, though, if we stay with this silly example of loving a croissant, I think there is also like an infinite range of fine tuning within loving the croissant. Mm. You don't need to necessarily, like that. That's also then if we say, well, love, love is like in this case can be so many things. You could love how it looks, how it is in your mouth, how, like how it crumbles or how carefully it was manufactured or the energy it gives you. So I think there's also an invitation there to like stay with love for the croissant, but just go deeper into what that love is and how that love is and why that love is. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I'm a bit distracted because it's it's morning. Yeah. And right before this conversation, I was briefly chatting to my business partner and we have this ongoing meme about croissants. Like, oh. <laughs> we often say like, oh, it's morning. I crave a croissant, but instead I have to record a podcast. And oh. now we're in the podcast <laughs> and you're talking about croissants all the time. So I'm a bit like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Serendipity, I guess. Yeah. But I hear you and I agree with your point. Like within each of the words we then use, we can, we can really just go deep in, in the way. What, that, what does that mean to us, right? But I think the difficult part is then when other people come in. Mm. Um, because then we have to try to transmit what we actually mean. And if we use the same words that they use for something else, yeah, of course. that becomes difficult. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And sometimes there is a, a bit of overlap. 
hopefully, and sometimes there's no overlap at all, you know, and then, and then things really break down when I say one thing and you understand something completely different. Richard, I'd, I'd like to switch gears mm. and go back to this original point, like when I asked you about relating to self and you came up with this idea of words as, as both the lens and also the creation method of how we mm. perceive the world. So I would love to know more about your relationship with the body, mm. um, like the, the, the nonverbal way in which we exist in the world, maybe through movement, maybe through mm. just sensations in the body, right? Like what is your relationship with your body? And if any, do you have any like practices to Uh, to improve that relationship? I think that I would be amiss at this question um, not mentioning that I experienced a uh, rather severe uh, traffic accident like now um, two and a half years ago or so. I'm very well recovered and that journey in itself has meant that I've deepened my relationship with my body and definitely had a, like that relationship took a big turn with this um with this accident where it's like the point where I realized, oh, well, this, this body won't last forever. And it has like an amazing capacity to heal, which I'm like very proud of and very fond of. And that's something that I really try to cultivate in my body by feeding it, by using it, by keeping it sort of fit for fight in some sense. Um, and I like to just on, on a reasonable level, like push my body. Like I had some, well, an example from, from recent times is I sometimes just make random decisions. Like, oh, I'm going to take double steps in the stairs. I live on the fourth floor, so there's four, four flights of stairs up. And I'm just, like, yeah, I'm going to do double steps all the way. And then it turns almost into like a light jog up the stairs with these bouncy steps. And I know that is, of course, a very privileged thing to be able to do. Uh, for me, it's also, it is an important part of my, my practice to to maintain my body. Mm. I think what else goes into that relating to self with the body? Well, feeling it, of course, and but but you know, accepting imperfections, I think, is super important. Um, just knowing like you are as you are, and you make the most of where your body is at in in a given day, or in a given year, or in a given life. Um, that's also very something that. Definitely matters. Mm. Yeah, I like what you said about this perspective of the body won't last forever, right? Like this idea of finite nature of life. And I'd like to share a moment I had yesterday, actually. I went to an ecstatic dance. Mm. And at a certain point, I don't know why, but this thought came up like, oh, I want to, from this position of being on the dance floor and using my body to the fullest possibility, mm. to like really embracing this life force that is present in this body. From here, I want to kind of send love and gratitude to me on my deathbed. Mm. Like yeah. I want this to right. be a moment I remember when I'm mm. dying. Like, you know, you've made the most of this body. You've, you've used it to, right. to dance and to experience these things. Yeah. And that was such a beautiful, profound kind of moment. Mm. Very internal, obviously. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about your relationship to, let's say, the idea of death. Mm. And if that influences your relationship with what the self is in any way. Yeah. Again, this, um, this accident where I very nearly died, um, had an impact on that. I think that day was like the fork in my life. 
And it was a bit of a coin toss whether I would walk away from that or not. Um, and I did, which means that now in some ways I feel like I'm living on bonus time. Mm -hmm. Now this is my second chance at life. I, I made a mistake. I was lucky not to suffer the ultimate consequence of that. And now I'm in a position where I can sort of, yeah, every day could not have been, like, I didn't have that realization before this happened that, you know, that there's, there's a, a real risk that it's all over every day. And like, I've, I've somehow already lived one of those days where it was all over. So it makes me think about my, my body and life itself as something like very like contradictory. I think that, you know, it's, um, in one hand, something that's really extremely worthy, like it, it's, it's so precious that I should really be making the most of it. But at the same time, I also know that my life is in one way already over. So I have, like, I, I can hold my life a bit more lightly because in some ways, like every day from here on is just a bonus day because I'm, I'm on the lucky side of the fork in the road. Uh, so to say. That's beautiful. I love that. And I feel it's related to my practice of like in the morning, I have this incantation I use every day. Mm -hmm. And it includes like something like a thought that is one day I will die. Mm -hmm. And today is not that day. Today I am alive. Yeah. And yeah, that's like celebrating this, the, the smallness of like the victory of life in every day. Yeah. That's very, in some ways, very ambitious. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't know. I, I might even say, well, I wake up, I'm alive. I might not reach the end of this day, right. but so far <laughs> I'm going to try, right? And I'm going to enjoy, yes. even if it turns out that by 3 p.m. I'm not here anymore, I, I, I will still enjoy my life until 3 p.m., right? You're so right. And maybe I should change it to, <laughs> oh, you know, yesterday I didn't die. <laughs> so I'll try again to be alive today. Yeah, but I, I, I well, no, I for me... The, the truest that I can think of spontaneously in, in, in that form of statement is to say, today I might die. Mm. And that, that at least is like what I take away from my experience, that it can happen any day. And therefore, you know, yeah, treasure your life, but also hold it lightly. You know, it's like really, really enjoy it, but don't cling to it. Mm. I love that. And I think that goes for many things, actually. Like that's that's life, but that's also many other things like a nice, you know, relationships or objects that you believe to some degree or other that you own or possess or, you know, family, many things. Yeah, I think even just experiences. Yeah, really. Like yes. in the moment, oh, I'm enjoying yeah. this, I'm not clinging to that, just mm -hmm. letting it pass. Yeah, because it will all be over, right? Yeah. So we better learn to and practice to, not learn to, I think we can, all, all, most of us can already do it, but to really practice to deeply enjoy while it's there with the knowledge that at some point it won't be, right? And also somehow celebrate that fleetingness because that also makes room for new things and other things. And that yes. it also in your relationship to self, right? Like you're not the best version of yourself today. In fact, you never will be the best version of yourself. You'll just keep on being very many different versions of yourself every time you wake up. And whatever version, now this also sounds like a motivational coach, but like whatever version of yourself you wake up with, on a particular morning, that's the version that you should treasure and celebrate. And at the same time, let go of at the end of the day, because the next day 
you wake up with a different version and a different potential and different opportunities. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a very beautiful way to be into life. I'd love to go back to the improv. Yeah. We've, we've talked about improv on this podcast before. I had uh, Mary Lemmer, mm. who that's basically right. yeah. does improv um, for mm -hmm. business, also personal life. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really curious, first of all, like how, how do you approach this improv as a practice of relating to self, right? Mm. Um, is it something that just happened to you or did you intentionally decide to pursue improv to change something in the way you perceive yourself or the way you are in the world. Mm. Yeah, I went, I sought it out in order to challenge my, um, my planning side, my structured side, my, you know, voice inside myself that tells me that the more contingency plans, the more backups I have, the better, the more prepared you are, the better it will work out, which is true in some regard of improv, like you can definitely train and practice and become more prepared to perform, but you cannot rehearse it, obviously, like you, as, as in a sort of spontaneous form of art that only appears on the spot in the moment. It, it really doesn't work that way. So that's what I came in looking for. And what I found was that and also this really powerful mirror of who I am because it it has taught me so much about my defaults as as a character in my own life you know as as myself by you know and then I'm always confronted with those defaults when I need to do something else like could you if, name those defaults yeah definitely like mean? I mean an example would be you know you as whether you want it or not you always have an age and also when you step on stage as an imp improviser, as an actor to, to embody a character, you need to also somehow give that character an age. And un un unless you do, you'll be there with your default age, like your posture, your voice, your whatever it is, your appearance, your, um, all your characteristics. And as soon as you want to shift that age to be younger or older, or even somehow ageless, you have to then act that. And as soon as you start noticing what you do to shift your age, you also realize like, what was my starting point? Like, what am I, what in the, is this in relationship to? And the same thing goes for how you express various emotions, how you re respond to conflicts and relationships and situations. And there's just so much that you understand about, well, oh, is this my default way of, um, like sitting at a restaurant, if that's what I'm miming, if that's what I'm doing, oh, well, I'm, I'm sitting. Yeah, this is obviously, that's then how I prefer to eat my food by sitting. I don't eat it standing or I don't eat it lying on the floor. Interesting, right? Like you, you find so many of these defaults and also in language and in like, how quick am I to respond? Where, what are the words that come up and like how, yeah, where do I hesitate? Where do I really lean in? And when, when do I take up space? When do I back off? There's just so much. To, to find there as you as you try on all these different characters like oh is that is that how I would behave as a as a dog in a scene where there is a dog needed to accompany something right okay well interesting then I also from that can find something in my actual self 
just because I get this other coordinate of like Richard as a dog, which is an imagined thing, like a made up thing. But that also from that, it's to me surprisingly easy to extrapolate something about myself as Richard in the outside of the improv stage. Mm. I tend to believe that this is a pretty good heuristic for interesting people. I think interesting people have the capacity and the ability to understand that they have default modes mm. and can also step out of them more easily. I think the more people are unaware that there is a default, they're just like stuck into a certain identity. And so what I'm really curious about is if improvisation has then made you question some of your defaults that you discovered, maybe to the point that you changed them in real life. Mm. Well, I was actually distracted by a thought there because I want to, again, call you out on sorting people into who is more interesting and not. I think that sure, is we have judgments like all the time. a bit, bit of a bit of a tricky, tricky thing to do, because if you like, yeah, try hard enough and you'll find anyone interesting, right? That's like, Absolutely. and yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to rate people by how interesting they are. If, if not, then I mean, because it also then invites other people to rate me on the scale of interestingness. And I am perhaps not so keen on that. But wait, but, are, are, do you think that's impossible? That's, that's, it's possible to not do that? Because I think that's a default yeah. way for humans to kind of go through life. We have, yeah. we are a social tribe. Yeah, we yeah. constantly judge oh, yeah. people and sort them, right? Yeah. So. yeah, I think that there's no like perfect human who finds interest and even, you know, appreciation and love for everyone they meet. No, 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 it won't happen. But we can definitely, our, um, like the, the mechanisms of our social selves and our emotional selves are fluid enough that we can train ourselves to find more people interesting. Even if they, you know, don't come from the same background as we do, they don't work with the same stuff that we do. They don't speak the same language as we do. They don't look like we do. They don't have the same values. But with practice, we can find like interest. And from that interest, also then compassion and appreciation for sure. a wider range of people, so to say. Yeah, thank you for that. Can we go back to uh, the question? Like, yes. Have you changed again. some of your defaults in your life through mm. discovering that you had them by doing improv? Mm. Yeah, I think um, very much my like um, default of when I speak up and when I step forward and when I step back. I think that's the one that I played with most. What was it before, and mm. how is it now? I'd say it was at least more unaware before. Now I, I see it and I can tell myself, oh no, today or like around this table rather, like in this particular social situation, I'm going to like break in a bit faster. I'm going to like not aim to, but not be uncomfortable if I interrupt people like three times during this dinner, because this is a case where my default would be to, to hold back more and like, wait a bit longer until I, until I say something. But I noticed that here, oh, this default might not be working so well here, or it would simply be interesting to try a more energetic participation a more abrupt participation in conversation. Yeah. And I think in general, that's a good thing, right? That's definitely something I relate to. I'm also usually more on the scale of like, I'm going to sit back, I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to share my thoughts. Oh, well, for someone else, it would be the complete opposite, like they would discover through an improv practice or through whatever other practice that helps them reveal their defaults, they would discover that they're usually often the person who takes up a lot of conversational space. And for them, the challenge of the default might be to just 
okay, I'm going to spend five minute chunks of time not opening my mouth, except for like perhaps ingesting some food, right? Um, but yeah, that's, um, I think we, what else can be like defaults that I've found? It, the other big one is just the, my amplitude of emotion. Like, because you, you face so many extreme, like made up scenarios and situations and relationships in, in improv. And I remember one, um, one in particular where my scene partner and I arrived at a point where they were, um, um, like yeah, either breaking up with me or my character, like their character was breaking up with my character or even divorcing them. And I had some form of lukewarm, oh, why? Or like, uh-huh, do you really want that kind of reaction? And our coach basically stopped the scene and be like, hey, you know what? No, no, that's not after like, you know, we know from previously in the scene that you're together for a long time, you're married, you're, you're like way invested in this relationship why are you now just accepting and taking such a like humble stance on this like bomb that just dropped, right? That, well, you're getting divorced and you might even have been cheated on. Like we, we need outrage here. Like this is not, this is not humanly possible to be so calm in the face of this revelation. So that's also something that went, whoa, wait. And I of course have to think what, what, how do I treat this kind of things in real life? Like when, 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 when bombs drop, around me or near me or against me, then why, like, how calmly do I react? And if I react calmly and humbly, where is the turmoil? Like, am I just locking it up inside? Like, where, what's, what's going on with that? So, so that, that like emotional amplitude and the same goes for positive things too, like to get excited or to get like fascinated or to get like totally blown away by something. Like that's also the, the whole sort of there's range of emotion of like, oh, okay, here's a whole new emotion that I maybe didn't have a word for or that I haven't really like noticed to the to this precision before. But there's also amplitude, like the volume of the emotion itself. Again, I think learning to to stretch, for me at least personally, learning to stretch both of those and expand both of those is, has been very helpful and is a, is a good thing that I'm practicing. Again, for others who live different lives, it might be the opposite at least when it comes to the amplitude, right? Of like practicing to to turn that volume knob down rather than up. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. I'm curious because, well, since we are here together in this space, right? I, I don't usually see this, but I know mm. that you have brought a notebook with some things that you've thought about before stepping into this conversation. So I'm wondering if there's anything that feels particularly alive for you that you would like to bring up at this point. Thank you. That's a wonderful invitation. I'm glancing at my notes. I think I have actually managed to uh, to cover off a fair bit. Um, one point that has, like, um, well, fascinated me recently and also had has been very resonant in conversations that I've had with other people about it is... Um, like a shift that I've experienced in, in past years from um, trying to live um, ever wider and wider to living uh, deeper and deeper. And that also goes with my relationship to self of like reframing growth from like this kind of very expansive idea of, oh, I need new things. I need another language. I need to live in another place. I need to 
you know, know entirely new sides of myself, but then rather coming at that with an acceptance of like, this is who I am. This is um, where I am right now. This is, these are my skills. And what can I do to not like transform myself, but rather like change myself perhaps more gradually by going deeper, deeper into these things. And sometimes that can be transformational too, I believe. And um, I think that is really important to also consider when we have this urge to go wider and just keep keep growing in width and sort of try on new things and follow curiosity to channel that energy and that curiosity towards what is also already there. And I'm not saying it's a degrowth approach to personal development, because that, that would be very backwards, but it's a it, it, just a different dimension of growth that I was so much less aware of before. And I am, for a long time, I was living and was reminded by other people that I was living a very fleeting kind of grass is always greener somewhere else sort of life in terms of jobs, in terms of location, in terms of friends, in terms of relationships, always like being slightly discontent and thinking, oh, well, there could be, there could be other better options. Now um, I'm trying my best to be a person who is much more interested, not in if the grass is greener somewhere else, but how it is green where I'm standing and why is it green right here? And how will it be a different green tomorrow? Like, what does this grass feel like, taste like? And like, why is it even green? What can I do on this grass? What, like, why is this grass even here? <laughs> like, to, to, to look at my, my current grass with much, much more interest and see much more potential in it rather than focusing on the other greener grass, but then saying, nope, that's not relevant today. I'm going to look at the grass I'm standing on, the grass I'm feeling and see, see what that's like. I'm curious what that translates to both in the outwardly expression of how you live your life and mm. also as like your, your inner experience. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could be more mm -hmm. concrete about yeah, how that has of changed. Of course, yeah, yeah. No, that's a very conceptual, philosophical yeah. kind of thought. But I still find that the 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 metaphor of like going from looking at the other grass to looking more closely at the current grass is, is, is still holds. But practically, it means internally being much more at peace, um, being less rushed, like allowing myself to take time and finding more more acceptance for myself. And, but also finding like more power to, to change and grow. And because I'm like rather going with my momentum than trying to radically abruptly change something in my circumstance and go seek out something else in the hopes of being some, being someone else when I find it, it's more about looking at who am I and where am I and what have I got right here that I can use to move in the direction I want rather than saying, okay, I'm just going to put all efforts into grabbing onto that thing way over there. And once I hold that, I believe I will be completely transformed. Uh, so it's much more starting from where I am today and right now. So that's the sort of in, inner side of it practically and how it comes to expression is just that I um, am 
I'd say more focused on um, rekindling older friendships. I'm back living now in um, somewhat the geographical region that I'm shaped by in my years growing up. I am happy to be like kind of settled in my career and looking at going deeper and advancing in the practice that I do rather than picking up something completely different and feeling this urge to go after new skills and new, uh, well, completely new dimensions of everything, which there will come phases where that is important too. Um, but I think we, we can definitely benefit from, from also being a bit more like focused on, on the grass, which is right where we are. And I think that also brings with it an invitation to live a more resilient and sustainable life if we're not always chasing after the new greener grass necessarily. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the self-acceptance part, like in, in mm. the, the inner process of that you named like, yeah, there's more self-acceptance. There's mm -hmm. more like slowing down. Yeah. That's not easy, right? For, for, for me, at least it was very difficult to like start accepting myself. So I'm curious what you have practiced to be able to be more self-accepting and to slow down your inner mm kind of like, um, process. Yeah. Mm. I think there is a really interesting, like tension between discipline and access and acceptance. And it's something I, I picked up in one of your recent conversations with, uh, Patrick as well. He was talking about his, uh, how he's sort of, it has discovered and is on a journey to discover, uh, deep resting as, uh, as I interpreted what he was saying. And, and I think that for me also comes out as this idea of discipline versus acceptance, like trying to like discipline myself a little bit less and like bend myself a little bit less into who I want to be and rather start from who I am and say like, okay, if I can only do spurts of 30 minutes of computer work at a time before I start getting distracted and grab my phone or something, well, then let's chunk work up into 30 minute pieces and then when the 30 minutes, this urge, urge to look at Twitter again or whatever it is, when that hits, then I'll go grab a fistful of almonds from the kitchen and have a little snack. And then I can throw the phone back under a couch pillow and do another half hour, right? So it's like also that idea to, to accept the, the limitations and turn those into strengths rather. And, and, and for me, that has a lot to do with, uh, with discipline and concentration and focus. Yeah. So it sounds, it was more like a, a conscious decision and then you brought awareness to mm. whatever was happening. And then you used focus and discipline to kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this because it always feels easy to me, like after the fact, right? Mm. Like when people ask me like, yeah, but how did you change that for yourself? I don't really have an answer. It's mm. more like I noticed over time that that improved. Yeah. And yes, there was an intention, perhaps there was a desire to, to be more equanimous, to be more calm, whatever it was. Yeah. But I can't really point exactly at what it was that brought me there. Yeah. Now, something I do, which I believe is very, has, a, carries a lot of strength and potential for me is to lead by behavior mm. rather than to uh, lead by um, like saying something or even thinking, deliberately thinking, oh, I, I want to do this, but no, just do it. Like, if you want to be the person who commutes by bicycle, just start doing it. 
like you don't need to talk about it. You don't need to necessarily research it that much. You don't need to plan it. You don't need to like even, you know, change your fundamental values or anything. It's it's just a it's just a behavioral thing. It's just a habit. And that's for example how I like got got rid of flying, I should say, or lost flying from my life by realizing that, oh well, flying is something that is not necessarily good for me even on a very deep level like it makes me very unrooted and is constantly feeding my opportunity to live this life in search of the greener grass and i um, i decided well i'm going to do a flight detox so i made sure i went somewhere where i didn't have many opportunities to to fly away from and where i was just bent on okay going to be here in this relatively far away from everything else location and not fly out of here until I've learned to live without flying. And, uh, and so I did. And like that, um, yeah, starting from that behavior of like yeah, a new habit, a new, a new thing that I'm doing, that, that then feeds my intellectual processing of it and my emotional relationship to, to that practice and also my, my values of like, okay, as I'm now doing this, I'm living this way, I am de facto a person who has the values of not taking flights, not traveling by air travel. So yeah, I love that so much. I, I think that's something I've experienced so many times in my life where I tend to I want to figure things out, you know, and then I just keep thinking about them. Yeah. And this bias for action that you just mm. named. And I think that is the, the flip side of what you mentioned about when, when we look back, like it, it feels like if, as if a change just happened. But for me, most of when, most of the times when I have that retrospective surprise of like, wow, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm someone different now or I'm relating to this in a different way. It often comes from just having started to, to do something differently. Mm. Beautiful. Well, Richard, this was a wonderful conversation. We're already at the end of it, sadly. Thank you. Um, I'm curious if there was anything that you really still want to mention or maybe a question that you would have hoped that I would ask you. Um, well, no, I'm simply just grateful for, for being here and for you to like, yeah, tease these things out of me and creating this platform of for, for people to learn and exchange and share their approach to life and to relating to themselves. I think that's a very beautiful gift that you bring to the world. So again, I have nothing but gratitude in this moment. Mm, thank you, Richard. It's beautiful. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks.